0: Amen. You know, as we sing that song, Ancient Words, it reminds me just how important God's Word is. I think we often take that for granted uh, in our day and time, when indeed there have been many who have shed blood over these words through the years. Uh, It reminds me of the critical um, commitment to what we, as Protestants often call, Scripture alone. One of the great uh, doctrines recovered and claimed in the Protestant Reformation, Scripture alone. That it's God's Word alone that gives life. It's God's Word alone that we need uh, when it comes to understanding who He is and what He has done for us. We don't need man's tradition. We don't need other things uh, outside of Scripture. And uh, also, just uh, by way of a reminder, I want to encourage you next Sunday evening to join us here at 6 p.m. for our reformation celebration we're going to have some refreshments together we're going to have uh, a movie uh, on Luther and don't think that if you don't like history and you don't like movies that you'll be bored you won't i think it'll be helpful to you and encouraging to you in your faith as a christian to understand why we would even talk about the protestant reformation 500 years after it happened uh, it's very critical and so we encourage you to sign up for that you can do that here at the ministry connection and On our website. And so please join us for that time. There will also be a movie for children, same kind of thing, but kids version. And so bring your kids. It'll be a family time. Just come and join us, hang out, Uh, be encouraged in the truth. And that's next Sunday evening. Speaking of being encouraged in the truth, let's now turn to Romans chapter three. Our text today will be verses one through 20. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's favor and grace as we consider his truth. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for inspiring these very words, words that the Apostle Paul wrote to a particular local church at a particular point in time in history, and yet words now, Lord, that we are encouraged by, exhorted by, informed, and even transformed by. Father, would you open our eyes and ears today that we would be able to see and hear And also, Lord, that we would be able to receive and respond today in a way that brings glory to you. Father, we thank you for this word. Help us now to understand it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are just a few short months from tax season. I knew that would get an amen, but it didn't. That means that you and I have the privilege to settling up with the IRS In taxes owed, or maybe some of you will be getting a refund if you've ever paid. You think about paying taxes. When it comes time for you to either prepare your own taxes or have someone prepare them for you, one of the things that you will do, it's a very important thing, is that you'll be on the lookout for what's called a loophole. A tax loophole. A tax loophole is simply a legal way to use the tax code to save yourself money such as the American Opportunity Act, which is a tax break for college expenses, or the mortgage interest deduction, or the child tax credit. The government says you owe this much, but these certain loopholes reduce your overall burden by allowing that tax to be less in the end. Some even end up benefiting in such a way where they owe no taxes at all. But we're not going to get into... Taxes. We're going to wait until Romans chapter 13. That's a few weeks away. So why bring this up now? Well, that's a good question. Why would I even mention taxes? Well, I'm not as interested in taxes. I'll let Congress figure that out. Um, I'm really trying to help us understand the idea of a loophole. Back in Romans chapter 2, Paul has just dealt the Jewish people a crushing blow to their pride and to their own assessment of their condition before God. In chapter one, Paul had highlighted the corruption and depravity of the nations, and then in chapter two, he now accuses the Jews of being no better. Both Jews and Gentiles would rightly fall under the judgment of God, but the Jewish people didn't believe it. They weren't buying it. They assumed that because they were God's elect people, his covenant people, that there would certainly be some loophole for them at the end of the day. When it comes to settling up with God, surely there would be something like the Jewish Protection Acts (laughs) that would keep them safe from God's judgment. Sure, they might be guilty of some of the same sins as the Gentiles, but hey, after all, they were God's covenant people. He had made covenant promises to them, promises that surely he would uphold. But by the end of chapter two, Paul levels the playing field and concludes that there is in fact no loophole for the Jew. They, along with the Gentiles, will be held to the same standard and they will meet the same judgment. Well, What good was it then being Jewish? Great question. Let's look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us, I speak in a human way? By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil, that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave." For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. As Paul now moves into chapter 3, by the time you get to verse 20, he will be concluding an argument that he began in chapter 1, verse 18. In chapter 1, verse 18, Paul begins this indictment of humanity, starting with the Gentiles, moving to the Jews, concluding, no one is right before God. The time he gets to the end of this section that we'll be looking at today, that will be clear. So, as we follow Paul's conclusion here, as we follow him kind of wrapping up his argument, his indictment against humanity, we could summarize the main idea of Romans 3, verses 1 through 20, and maybe even all of the section, chapter 1, 18 through uh, chapter 3, verse 20, as this main idea that we see kind of coming from these verses is this. God is unwaveringly committed to upholding his righteousness in judging sin, even among his own covenant people. God is totally committed, totally committed to upholding his righteousness and bringing judgment against sin, even among his covenant people. Now, as we walk through these verses, we're going to see Several reasons why God's justice against sin must stand. I want to see that. And In fact, let me just give you the, the three reasons why we see this uh, is the case that we're going to walk through this morning. In verses 1 and 2, we're going to see how religious advantages have been ignored. Therefore, God's justice will stand. God's character cannot be denied. That's point number two. Therefore, God's justice will stand. And everyone is sinfully enslaved. Therefore, God's justice must stand. What we're going to walk through today together. Let's consider first of all, reason number one why God's justice against sin must stand. First point we see is that these religious advantages that the Jews had had, particularly, had been ignored. See that in verses one and two, in particular. And by the way, uh, some have said that. Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8 are some of the most difficult verses in the entire book of Romans, if not in the entire New Testament. Because Paul is really, he's taking a, a, somewhat of a detour. He's been talking about the, the really kind of honing in there in chapter 2, particularly among the Jewish people, just helping them understand their, their condemnation and, and, and their accountability to God. But he's, he's continuing that and, and he's, he's wanting them to understand the implications of that. And So as he's pressing in here in chapter 3, he's, he's taking us on a little bit of a detour as he wraps up his conversation of judgment concerning the Jewish people, certainly to all people. So that's what we're kind of listening in on. And so if you find this like, whoa, what's he, it sounds like he's debating and and it kind of, he's kind of debating someone like a, like someone who would stand opposed to him. And this is conclusion that the Jews are just as guilty as the Gentiles. And so this is what we're listening in on in verses one through eight, this conversation that, that Paul might've had with a Jewish person that just wasn't buying his arguments. But here we see that religious advantages have been ignored, So the question we see, what advantage has the Jew? If it's true that the Jewish people were no better off in judgment, then what good was it being a Jew? And what value was something like circumcision or even the law? I mean, what good were all these things if it's true that the Jewish people were in no better shape than the Gentiles? And to our surprise, Paul responds much in every way. What advantage has the Jew? What value is circumcision? Paul says, you would think if you were tracking with him, if you were following along here, you would think that he would say they have no advantage. Right? That's logical thinking. If they're just as bad shape as the Gentiles are, therefore, they would not have any advantage. But that's not what Paul says. He says, much in every way. Much in every way. To begin with, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Oracles of God, oracles, a common way of referring to God's word, divine utterances. It sounds like he begins a list there. He's like a preacher, he never concludes his thought, right? To begin with, you'd think they have the oracles of God, and then you would expect something else to follow, but he doesn't give us that. In fact, if you want to flip over there real quick, um... He does kind of add things later in Romans chapter nine, verses four and five. And by the way, what we're seeing here, kind of listening into this conversation in Romans three, Paul is going to deal in in a lot more detail with in Romans chapter nine, 10, and 11, as he talks about, again, how all of this impacts the covenant people, the Jewish people, and how all that uh, is fleshed out. But if you look at verses four and five there in Romans nine, he's talking about his kinsmen according to the flesh. Remember, Paul is Jewish. And he says in verse three, I wish that I myself were a curse and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen. According to the flesh, they are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Amen. The Jewish people had a significant advantage. To be Jewish meant that they had an enormous privilege when it came to the things of God. They had a massive advantage over the Gentiles due to the promises of God being given directly to them. They had all of these things, but just like with any privilege, whether it's ethnic privilege or economic privilege, with high privilege comes high responsibility. No, not it's it's not uh, a popular thing to talk about privilege today. Friends, the fact is that in some way, all of us have certain kinds of privileges over the others. And right here, you see an example of that in in the Bible. The Jewish people had these religious privileges, but sadly, they focused more on their privilege than they did with the responsibility they had from it. Namely, receiving the promises, embracing the law, and being a light to the nations. They didn't do any of that. So in short, did the Jews have an advantage? Absolutely, but they ignored it by disregarding and disobeying God's law. They falsely assumed that simply possessing these privileges, possessing these things meant that they were okay when the blessings uh, with with God because the blessings that, that he gave them, namely his law, his promises, his covenant. But friends, these things were not intended to be merely possessed, as if they're as if you can just kind of take them along as as good luck charms these things were given to them to be embraced the promises to to be given to them to be believed the law to be obeyed and yet they didn't believe they didn't obey the promise of blessing would not actually bring blessing unless it was embraced So the Jews had a great advantage, but they ignored it. You know, there are millions of people today who live in our world that are classified as unreached, meaning, depending on who uses that term, meaning that 2% or less of those people groups have no access to the gospel, little to no access to the gospel, and therefore aren't Christian, these folks have little to no access. And yet we know, based on Romans 1, that the reality of God and his character is still known to them because what has been clearly made in creation is, makes, makes clear that there's a God. They have general revelation, so they are without excuse. But they still have little to no access of the tremendous... of these ancient words that we sang of earlier this morning. All of us here in this room do not live in far-off places with little to no access to the gospel. If anything, we have an oversaturation of the gospel, and that is certainly a good thing. The access that you and I have to biblical truth is amazing, absolutely amazing. I mean, you can download a Bible study app that you'll never exhaust, and you can tote that thing along with you wherever you go, right? Those of you who use your phones in church, I know that's what you're looking at, right? When you're following along with this, you're looking at your Bible study app, Right? not Snapchat or Facebook or anything else you're just tracking along with the sermon but even if you take that throughout the week i mean you can just dive deep into that thing and never exhaust it most of us have bibles at home that we haven't cracked open in ages because we have many of them some of us have in the double digits i've got two bookshelves in my office of bibles well you're a pastor you should well Not necessarily. There are some pastors in the world that would be thankful to have one Bible. It's an advantage that we have. The advantages that you and I have are huge. They're different in a way that we're talking about from the Jewish people, but the point being is that just in in, in some ways similar to the Jewish people, we have advantages as well. Many of us have been raised in Christian families, or if you weren't raised in a Christian family, you've been raised near a Christian family. There's access, at least open access to truth around. Again, the advantages that we have are significant, but listen, when you and I stand before God and give accounts on that day, God is not going to be concerned with how much advantage or how much access you had, but he is going to be concerned with how you responded to those advantages and access. To the blessing of having that truth easily accessible and the truth in which it embodies and and teaches us. And simply having a Bible in your hand is useless unless it takes root in your heart. The advantages that the Jewish people had were significant. They ignored it. They didn't believe the promises like God had intended them for to, to believe. They, they didn't obey the law. They, they had rejected it. They had fallen into idolatry and been judged time and time again. What does this mean? How, how would I think this just, as Paul's bringing this indictment down upon the Jewish people, showing, listen, you had, you had all this open access to God's covenant, and you didn't do anything with it. I think that just should at least, in passing here, just remind us that, listen, the advantages that you and I have, God has given those to us for a reason, not to just play games with God. Friends, listen, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, maybe you're not a Christian and you've been attending this congregation, this church for a period of time, you've heard the gospel, you've heard, what, you've, you've heard time and time and time again of how a sinner can be made right with a holy God, and you're going to continue to hear that if you come. For that is a gift, not because we're creative, but what I want you to see that if you come here and you're not a believer in Jesus, you're not following Jesus, one, you are so welcome here. We're glad you're here. We hope you keep coming back. But as God's word is preached, as it's proclaimed, as it is shared, as it is discussed, these are advantages that you would do well not to ignore. God has providentially put you in a context to hear the good news about Jesus to give you endless opportunities to grow in your understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But listen, don't presume upon these advantages thinking that proximity to these things is good enough. Until you have understood the holy character of who God is and the helpless condition of who we are and God's amazing, sufficient gift to us to be made right with him and embrace that in faith by turning from your sin. Friend, they're just ignored advantages. These are intended to be embraced, to be believed, to be followed. Don't presume upon the blessings of God thinking proximity is good enough. And friends, as Christians, we must maximize the advantages that we do have. Can you imagine just, again, thinking about all of the resources that we have and all of the privileges and advantages that we have, and we just, we just waste so much of that. One of the reasons that God was bringing judgment upon his own covenant people, holding them accountable as sinners, was because these religious advantages had been ignored. He had given them what they needed to know. And they said, no thanks. Point number one, number two, second reason why God's judgment must stand is that God's character cannot be denied. God's character cannot be denied. See this in verses three through eight. One of the main threads that you will see throughout the scripture is the fact that God makes a covenant with Abraham and establishes the people for himself. Indeed, God makes a promise that seems to ensure that ethnic Jews will have a future salvation. And we're going to get more in depth about that in Romans 9 through 11. You can see the covenant established in Genesis 12 and again in chapter 15 of Genesis and all throughout the Old Testament. You see God is making this, this covenant and keeping faith to this covenant. He's being faithful to this covenant among his people all the way through the Old Testament. So does, does that mean, based upon what Paul has said in Romans 2, doesn't that put God's covenant promise then in jeopardy? If it is true that Jews are in no better shape than the Gentiles, they're just as sinful, just as condemned, will, just, will be judged just like the Gentiles, but God's made this covenant with the Jewish people, doesn't that put his promises in jeopardy? Doesn't that put God's integrity on the line? Or, as Paul says in verse 3, does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Not at all. Not at all. It's one of the things that, th- this is one of the things that makes these verses so difficult, is you've got to kind of dive into this idea of covenant and promise and how all this is, is, is shaped out. Again, we're going to bring this back to light in, in the subsequent chapters, But the issue here is that when we think about the faithfulness of God in reference to his covenant, we tend to only think of it in one way. Even in our singing this morning, I guarantee you, when you were singing, Great is thy faithfulness, you were thinking, Great is thy faithfulness to bless your people, right? The blessings. Friends, one of the things that we need to remember is that if you go back to the Old Testament, when God made a covenant with his people, the covenant included blessings, but it also included cursings. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 28 and you'll see that. So how does their faithlessness not nullify the faithfulness of God? Paul says, by no means, it doesn't. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written. Then he quotes Psalm 51, Verse 4. This is taken from David's confession of sin after his sin with Bathsheba. And he's confessing his sin to God. And you know what David's doing there? He's confessing his sin to God, and he's basically saying, God, I have sinned and you are right to judge me for it. He's not clinging to some Jewish loophole. He's not, he's not pulling out his Jewish card and saying, I've sinned, but hey, I'm part of your covenant people. Therefore, I'm good. No, he's, he's recognizing God's right, his, his, his rightness to bring him, to be, hold him accountable. So that's what you see there in, in, in our text, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you were judged. The point then is that even though God had promised salvation to the Jews, listen, and this is critical, somewhat controversial, but it's important. Even though God had promised salvation to the Jews, that did not, it it did not guarantee every individual Jew salvation. No individual Jew could think that he or she were somehow guaranteed salvation due to the promise made to the nation as a whole. Romans 9 says, not all Israel are Israel. So God remains faithful to his covenant, either in blessing his people or judging his people according to the covenant that he made with them, to bless them in obedience, to curse them in disobedience. So if he brought blessing due to their faithfulness, he remains faithful. If he brought judgment due to their unfaithfulness, he remains faithful. One commentator put it. Ralph Davis, I think, is his name. Put it this way: Paul's point here is simply to say, "Great is thy faithfulness, and it might very well kill you." Probably weren't thinking about that when we sang earlier. God's faithfulness, friends, listen. This is true for. If you don't hear me say anything else, hear this: God's faithfulness is either the most comforting thing to you or it should be the most frightening thing to you. Because God cannot deny his holy character, his faithfulness to uphold his His character in light of sin. That is either the most reassuring, comforting thing to you because you're in Christ, or it is the most frightening thing to you. There's no neutrality with that. You think about the faithfulness of God. It is either your certain salvation or it could very well mean your certain condemnation, because God is faithful to uphold His character. That's what Paul's basically saying here. And so then Paul quick, quickly deals with an objection. So there's these, there's these. Again, he's he's using this diatribe maybe, or this where he kind of creates a fictional character and and goes into a, a, a spar with them. He's debating them with them a little bit. Some would conclude that, well, if our unrighteousness somehow shows the righteousness of God, even if if God is faithful, if, if my unrighteousness, or let me put it this way, if my sin somehow magnifies the faithfulness of God, then why would God still hold me accountable? He's being magnified even in my sin. That sounds absurd, doesn't it? That's how some were taking Paul's teaching Oh, well, you say God is faithful even in bringing um, uh, the cursings according to his covenant, even, even as he judges his own people. Why not sin so God's glory may, be, may abound? And Paul just simply, there in verse eight, why do, why do not evil that good may come as some people slanderously charge us with saying, he just simply says, the people that think like that, their condemnation is just, that's nonsense. They've missed the point. Two quick takeaways here from this observation. God will not deny his character is that God will never deny his commitment to uphold his righteousness. To think that somehow we can escape his judgment even through religious privilege is a mistake. And friends, that's not just a problem with the Jewish people of this day. How many times have we said in talking about our own confidence before God, we will say things, you know, I've heard people say a bunch of things. Well, I go to church. I'm Baptist. I'm Catholic. I'm this. I'm that. No gospel in there whatsoever. I'm this. Therefore, God, because of my privilege, because I've... Maybe God, maybe done God a favor by, by being somewhat connected loosely, affiliated with loosely to this maybe church. Surely God will not hold me accountable. Listen, God will never deny his commitment to uphold his righteousness. And whether you're Jewish, whether you're Gentile, whether you're Catholic, whether you're Baptist, whether you're nothing, you will stand before a holy God And because he is faithful to his character, he will hold every single one of us accountable. Reach for your Catholicness, reach for your Baptistness all you want. It will do you no good on judgment day. So never presume upon religious privilege. What you should do is be thankful to God that he has put you in a context where you have all of these advantages and privileges. And maximize those privileges to his glory. Never presume upon the kindness of God. Second takeaway: by foolishly thinking that somehow our sin is simply a way for God's glory to be made known. Now that sounds shocking that who, who in the world would think that way? You'd be surprised. Don't ever seek to rationalize your sin, thinking that somehow. Through my sin, God could be more glorious because the more I sin, the more grace abounds, and the more God gets glory. Or the more I sin, the more God's faithfulness is on display, therefore God gets glory. Don't, don't, don't rationalize your sin. Don't presume upon the kindness of God's grace by foolishly thinking that somehow through our own sinful ways, God's glory can be made known better. God is, God is faithful to his character. His character cannot be denied. But a third point is that everyone is sinfully enslaved. So by the time Paul wraps up his point here, particularly to the Jewish people in verse eight, he goes into verse nine. What then? Are we Jews any better off? There's a lot of discussion on what does he mean by there are we Jews, but the point remains the same because of what he continues to say. Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all for we have already charged. Why are they not better off? It's not because of the advantages. It's because of what they didn't do with them, right? Because he goes on to say, for we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And then he begins to give further biblical support for this argument by quoting from the prophets and the Psalms. In verses 10 through 18, it's just Old Testament verse after Old Testament verse put in together to seal the deal. These verses are a summary of what Paul's already argued, but he wants to be crystal clear that the assessment of our condition before God is not good. Four quick things that he highlights about our condition here, and these are universal. These are universal facts both Jews and Greeks are under sin as it is written. Here's the, here's the biblical support for what I'm saying. This is what Paul's writing. First of all, we all have hearts turned from God. You see that in verses 10 through 12. No one is righteous, no not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Notice the no ones, none, no one, no not one, no one, no one, not even one. Any loophole there? I think no one's pretty clear, isn't it? It's a universal indictment here of how we all have hearts turned from God. Now, I know that we often hear people's assessment of others that often sounds something like this Well, she's a good person, he's a good person. That might be your assessment. Especially when comparing that person to someone that's worse. But you need to remember that is your assessment because you are basing that upon your standard. And when it comes to being accountable to God, that is not how God sees things. He doesn't look through the lens of your standard, He doesn't use your assessment. He has His own. And it's tied to His perfect character. It's God's assessment, friends, that ultimately matters. Not what other people think of you. Not what you think about yourself. Not what you think about others. Not what people have told you time and time again. God's assessment is what matters. And he tells us here that all of us have hearts turned from him Not a single person is able to stand on his own as right before God. The essence of sin is revealed here as a failure to understand and seek after God. Instead, we turn away and seek other gods. Now, I know that we often use the word seeker. And it's true that people are seeking. I'm not ready to do away totally with that word. They are seeking meaning. People are seeking purpose, fulfillment, hope, But the one thing that the Bible makes crystal clear is that one thing that they aren't seeking is to find those things in God. There are a lot of seekers out there. They just don't know what they're seeking. They think they know what they're seeking, but it's not ultimately God that they're seeking. So yes, we all have hearts turned from God. We could go on and on about that, but he's made that clear all the way through from chapter one forward. But a second assessment that he brings to bear here upon all of humanity is that we have tongues hostile to the truth. Look at verses 13 through 14. Their throat is an open grave. So now you're, you're, you're seeing the fruit, if you will, in verses 13 and following of the reality of verses 10 through 12. The fact that no one is righteous and no one understands and no one seeks for God and that all have turned aside and does no good and not even one, you see that that is a, going to now reflect itself in how we speak Road is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive, mouth full of curses and bitterness. Friends, the, the reality of human sinfulness is nowhere more clear than how we speak to each other. Just think about that. Paul highlights here the destructive nature of communication communication, how we speak. Jesus said in Luke chapter six, verse 45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure uh, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Our mouths, and in our day and time, I guess we have to say our tweets, whatever you do, are an immediate reflection Upon the reality of our hearts, we can see clearly the nature of fallenness by simply listening to human speech. Friend, listen. What class did you take when you were little? Where you learn to deceive? What, what class was it that, that, that you went to where someone taught you how to lie? How to manipulate? There was no class. We, we don't take our kids to lying class, they're experts at it because you're an expert at it. Why? Because we're all sinful, we're all fallen, we're broken. We're a train wreck before God because of a rebellion against him. This is what Paul's saying. Even in how we speak, it's clear. Actions, verses 15 through 17, their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. Actions filled with strife, a third point. Friends, human sin is obviously not limited to the heart and tongue. It's expressed in, in in our behavior and all around are examples of human evil, abuse, violent crime, murder, absence of peace. Families are destroyed. Neighborhoods, cities are, 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 are destroyed because of evil, because of sin. Friends, the evil that exists in our world is only proof that man is not good by his nature. You're going to hear that. Listen, you're going to hear people tell us that by our, that, by, that we are good, basically good. That's a worldly assessment. And you might find things that we do that are helpful, but nature, compared to God and His holiness, we're not good. Our actions are filled with strife. And then, fourth, we have lives that are absent of fear. Look at verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul sums it up quite well here with a quote from Psalm 36 No fear of God left to ourselves and fallen natures we are people bent on rejecting God and that's evident in our words and behavior and ultimately in how we live out our lives as if God doesn't even exist we don't fear him now this is this is who you are on your own left to you this is this is you Have you ever been caught like dead in your tracks doing something wrong? Like just busted. There's, you can't say a word. I mean, you know it's wrong, you're doing it, and someone catches you in the moment. Let's everybody raise their hands just because we've all been there, right? Everybody raise their hand. All of us have, right? Well, that's basically where Paul leaves us in verse 20. We're all exposed in our sin and if, it's as if Paul was a good prosecutor. He rests his case against us and there's nothing we can say. Nothing. We can't say, but, but Paul, I'm different. No, you're not. This is, this is who we are, Jew, Gentile, young, old, rich, poor, whoever you are. We're all exposed in our sin and there is nothing that we have in and of ourselves to offer as a proper defense. And here we stand before a judge who's about to give us the sentence. The law is not even of help. Indeed, it's the very thing that condemns us. As Paul points out one more time, He simply here says in verses 19 and 20, basically says, if the Jews who had the law could not keep it, then it follows that no one can. Therefore, all are accountable. Friends, by the time you get to verse 20 of chapter 3, these verses should strip away from all of us any sense of self-confidence or merit-based salvation, if you're to stand before God on on that day when he holds us all accountable, and if you're depending on something in you, then that will be an awful day. Friends, I know that we have come from a variety of backgrounds and contexts. This room is made up of people from different economic, ethnic, and cultural backgrounds. And God's glory is even seen in our differences. But when it comes to who you are before God, listen, we all have the same story. It might look a little different, but it's the same disease that has impacted us all. Privileges or no privileges, we all stand before a holy God rightly condemned as sinners. We stand guilty with no alibi, no loopholes to change our status, nothing to say, even in our defense. The evidence is undeniable and the consequences are inescapable. So, does that leave us without hope? To pick up on one of Paul's phrases, not at all. I'm thankful that Romans didn't end in Romans three verse 20. In verse 21, there's this little word, three letters, "but." Amen. Amen. But in that little conjunction, that little conjunction is going to transition us from the, the horror and the, the, the hopelessness and the helplessness and the, and the utter ugliness of our human condition before a holy God. That little conjunction, Paul is now going to shift. He's going to shift and, and, and say, there's great hope for us. That small conjunction will transition us to see how God in his mercy responds to our dilemma. It's the horror of verses, of chapters one through three that will drive us to the hope that you'll see from here on out. If you don't understand the horror of your sin, you will never celebrate the hope of the glory of the gospel in Jesus. And as a result, you will never live out The life that God has called you to live as His people. It's necessary that we go through these exposing, wounding passages because as it breaks us down, what we will find in the gospel is a great hope that even though we've been left stripped bare in Christ, we will have this beautiful garment that clothes us afresh and anew. Taking the guilty sinner and turning him or her into a beautiful saint, not because of our own doing, but because of the beautiful work of an amazing savior, a glorious redeemer. We sang earlier this morning, your blood has washed away my sin, Jesus, thank you. The father's wrath, fully deserved, fully deserved, but is completely satisfied in Christ. Jesus dies on the cross. He does so in our place, taking our sin and our shame and our condemnation upon himself so that whoever would believe in him on that day would not be condemned, but would stand clothed and cleansed as adopted children of God. Praise God. That even in our utter depravity, his glory can shine brightly because of what he's done through his son, our Lord and Savior. A great redeemer. Let's pray. Father, we come out of these verses this morning just probably feeling the weight of our own sin before you. Father, even as I preach them, who am I? Who am I to, to tell a room full of people how bad they are when I'm no better? For, oh Lord, we are all broken, we are all bruised, Father, we are all exposed for who we are. Father, we admit that there is no one good before you. And this indictment that we find in chapters one through three, Lord, it is our story. And Father, to our shame, it's our story It's our testimony. And Lord, my prayer today is that as we, as we hear these exposing words, Father, that we would own our own sin before you. God, that we would just simply stand before you. Lord, there's nothing we can say. We're guilty as charged. There's no defense in and of ourselves that we can have to bring Nothing. Father, we do have hope because we do have a great Savior. We do do have one who comes to our aid. We do have one, Lord, that comes to rescue, to redeem, to make us your own. Those are your people, I pray that we would find great hope in that today. God, that you would rekindle our joy, that you would rekindle our hope, that you would rekindle our confidence in you. Lord, that if there are any kind of, if if there's anything that we're doing to seek confidence in ourselves, that you would strip that away from us today. And Father, as your people, that you would help us to walk forward in faith, trusting you, with our eyes fixed upon you, because you are our hope. You, oh God, are our Savior. The very one who is right to condemn us is the very one. The very one who loves us. So, would you help us to glory in our Redeemer? And would you help us to walk in faith in obedience to you? God, you are so good. And my prayer today is that if there are any people that are in this room that don't know you as Savior, God, that you would break through, that you would just show them that even in their brokenness, there is great hope. And it's found in Christ. God, would you help us to see that today? It's in his name we pray. Amen.